This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, we have the director of Texas Tech University Climate Science Center, Catherine Hayhoe. We're going to ask her all about climate. Great. Going to figure it all out with her. Also, please subscribe to all of our podcasts, guys. Pod Save the World. We're going to talk about China this week. Uh, Xi Jinping is coming to the Mar-a-Lago this week. <laughs> Lost among all the other stuff, so it'll be interesting. We're going to preview that. Jared Kushner uh, got that all set up, so that's yeah, terrific. We're, we're good to go. By the way, that was seamless the way you said the president of China's name, Tommy. I used to work in this stuff. That's right. Also subscribe to With Friends Like These, Anna Marie Cox, and the growing juggernaut, Love It or Leave It. Guys, we had a great time on Friday. You should try the episode. <laughs> Tommy was on. <laughs> it was fun. I, uh, I compared Tommy to a certain item of clothing. I'm not going to ruin it for you, but you should listen. It's basically been trending on Twitter. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's weird to be your foil for a little while. I guess I deserve it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, tickets are still on sale for our LA show on uh, May 17th at the Ace Hotel, so go grab some of those. And... We have merch on sale, right? Yep. Today, the t-shirts doing, are back. The t-shirts are back. We're doing Friend of the Pod. We're doing Pod Save America. And due to popular demand, repeal and go fuck yourself. Ooh, nice. Don't buy any of this knockoff Amazon red bubble crap. I'm, I'm upset with this. I don't people. even want to talk about it. Okay, I don't we'll even talk about out. people. We'll you know what? Out. No, we're not going to cut it out. We're going to leave it in and just going to say a phrase one time. Cease and desist. That's it. Let, <laughs> yeah. that, let, that, let that just ring through your ears, Amazon creeps. Oh, like, okay. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, that's good. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com slash hi. Let's begin, as mm-hmm. we often do, with the goings-on <laughs> in the mind, in the addled, <laughs> the addled, wounded mind of our highly unpopular president. Uh, this morning, Trump was busy tweeting, once again, uh, the lie that Obama spied on him and his team. He got this from the uh, intrepid reporters <laughs> at Fox & Friends. It's amazing. In one of his tweets, he also included the FBI's Twitter handle, because apparently that's the only way he can get in touch with them. <laughs> <laughs> tweeted at the FBI like, hey, check out this reporter on Fox and Friends, even though the FBI has, of course, denied that Obama wiretapped him. Uh, in the circular nature of it, it's like clearly his staff leaks this stuff to Fox. 
Fox reports it. He tweets it like it's came out of nowhere, like it was real, sh- you know, shoe leather reporting. He, Honestly, you, if you just did it with closed circuit television, nobody would have to know Trump is doing this. <laughs> <laughs> he also, in the middle of the tweets about the Fox and Friends report, he just randomly started tweeting some nonsense about John Podesta and his brother in Russia. Hillary, he goes, Hillary got the debate questions, never apologized. Which just I, asking. It, this is, which is like Tom Petty, you know, <laughs> going, going to the old hits. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a story this morning that sort of got some of this going, which was uh, Eli Lake. Uh, reported that turns out, you know, the whole Devin Nunes thing when he went to the White House and he had those sources at the White House that said that some of the Trump officials were caught up in incidental collection of intelligence. And it seemed as though Susan Rice is the one who was asking for those names to be unmasked for her to understand the foreign intelligence, Mm -hmm. which is completely within the realm of normal, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... we, we don't know. Listen, we don't know what was reported. We don't know what Eli's source is telling him. I would guess that it rhymes with Blunez. Um, <laughs> Revin Blunez might have been his source. Is a little, uh, hey, let me get you back for lying to your face, Eli. Uh, Eli's a friend of mine. I can speculate like that on the pod. But, you know, what, what might have happened here is Susan was reading an, an uh, intelligence report that said, named U.S. official said X, Y, or Z to Russian official, Israeli official, like name a foreign country. And she was trying to figure out maybe this individual was undercutting U.S. policy or negotiating something in in violation of the norm that there's one president at a time it's because like, Obama was still president right, so, and she's trying to figure out what's going on. Hey, yeah, and that's hey. just that's not just legal, but it is completely appropriate and necessary to do your job. Like, hey, hey guys, um, I'm doing my job uh, trying to uh, 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 do national security business and uh, I keep hearing about unpaid Trump people talking to our, our counterparts. Um, that's bad. Yeah, this sounds bad. <laughs> and, you know, like, you know, Susan has been savaged ever since the Benghazi right. incident. Uh, she had nothing to do with the security for the individuals at the embassy. She has nothing to do with why the individuals there died. That was a tragedy. That's something we need to fix. She went on Sunday shows later and used talking points that were dated and needed to be fixed and got it wrong. And she apologized I, and, a, and atoned for that sin, but she is still like catnip for these guys. And they freak out when they see your name and they go crazy. Yeah. Also... I, Two years of bullshit about that. Two years of bullshit. So CBS News poll, 74% of Republican voters think it's at least somewhat likely that Trump's offices were wiretapped during the campaign. So my question about this whole thing is, it's like, does it, should we care about this? Does it matter? That we, like, the, the closed circuit thing that you were talking about with between Fox and Friends and Trump, right? Isn't this responsible for it? He's, he tells a lie. Fox backs up his lie and the Fox complex, all the related Fox organizations. Um, and, then, and then the Republican base believes it. And then we have to just sort of like move on. I, I feel like there's like that's the world we're living in. Right. And there's not much we can do about this. You know, Trump and his sort of propaganda machine built up around him can get this information out there and can make people believe it. But honestly, it doesn't really matter. Like, okay, you know, people are going to believe that there was something going on with people spying on Trump during the election. It doesn't take anything away from the very big and serious investigation that is slowly chipping away at the Trump administration. You know, somebody made this analogy on Twitter, which I thought was a good one. It's like um, Trump's been Trump's been uh, uh, caught having an affair and he's just attacking his girlfriend for looking at his phone. (laughs) 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 And so, you know, okay, like you're going to keep doing that. All right. Hillary got a debate question from Donna Brazil in the primary okay okay your your national security advisor resigned uh the senator mark warner from virginia says more and more of the dominoes are going to fall so good luck with that man you know in the end the truth is coming out and and what matters is the thing itself yeah he gave a pretty um crazy interview to the financial times over the weekend that they released Uh, two things i just want to bring up from that interview um, one foreign policy, so I'm going to ask you, Tommy. Um, he was asked about North Korea. He said, quote, if China is not going to solve North Korea, we will. And that's all I'm saying about that. What what the hell did he mean by that? Do you know? I mean, real quick, back to your point. I think that, that this bigger challenge is like a cancer of partisanship in our political system, which mm-hmm. is that, like everyone <laughs> believes everything based on what party they're in. So right. I don't know that it's bigger than Trump. It's like a, a something we need to solve more broadly. That The North Korea portion of that FT interview is baffling. First of all, it's baffling that they were like, yeah, let's sit this guy down with the FT. Because clearly, that. clearly he's fucking clueless. Clueless. He's learned nothing. <laughs> he's learned nothing in this process. So a couple things in North Korea. The, the journalist says, what is the incentive about North Korea? And he says, I think it's trade. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody thinks it's trade. Everyone thinks that the way you incentive China's what they're looking at with respect to North Korea is one, 
if the place collapses, uh, they're going to have a flood of refugees into their country. Two, if the peninsula reunifies and North and South Korea are all South Korea or some new thing, uh, they're likely to be an American ally and our military assets move further and further up the peninsula towards their border. So there's a lot of things they're worried about and ways to incentivize their involvement. None of them has to do with trade or all the weird things he pivots to because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Does not know what he's there talking about. There were so about. many moments in that interview where he tr- clearly just did not understand the question, and he just went back to his old talking points. Like, <laughs> there was one who was like, "Is it a virus or the antidote?" And he goes, "Ah, we're gonna start winning again." Like, it just has right, absolutely right. no idea. Right? They're like, "Well, so you know, can we press you on this? If you're not gonna, China's not gonna sell North Korea, we will." Point. And he goes, "I don't have to say anymore." Totally. So the other, totally. Big, the, other, the, <laughs> other big, the other big one in that interview was healthcare, which is uh, he said that a deal is still being negotiated with the Freedom Caucus. Right. It's not. But quote: If we don't get what we want, we will make a deal with the Democrats, and we will have, in my opinion, not as good a form of healthcare, but we will have it. So we have to break into like what is going on with healthcare right now. So okay. that that felt to me like a negotiating posture, kind of filter through Trump's one hundred word vocabulary. Yes. Because basically he's saying. Don't make me go to the Democrats Freedom Caucus. You'll end up with something you dislike more than than, than what you'll get from me now, right? It's, it's sort of just a, a counterproposal. I mean, the one thing I took away from that interview is is it actually it, it didn't actually seem as crazy as usual to me. A lot of the parts of like, you know, saying things like, um No, dude. Yeah, what? I thought I don't uh, maybe not crazier than usual, but definitely dumber than usual or as dumb as it usually is. Yes. You could be, the, the, none of the words made sense in that interview. I mean He said alliances have not always worked out very well for us, okay? <laughs> uh, I, I guess talking about NATO, we, we, I, I, all of this was just head scratching. I think Blake Hounshell from Politico sort of remarked on the collective sort of eh, to yeah. the interview. When you think if this was six months ago, people would have just been like we are fucked. But I want, I, well, I want to go I back to health- as, uh, I just took it as garbled Trump nonsense. Yeah. Okay. I want all. to go back to healthcare because um, something's going on with healthcare here when he says we'll have to make the deal with the Democrats. Because obviously the Democrats are not going to help him on this. But there is a hope in the White House that they can get the Democrats to fix this. And this is the hope. If they sabotage the insurance markets, they think that they will be able to then get Democrats to fix them. And there is a theory in the White House among some right now. Bannon, Pence, some others, that what they'll do is stop making those payments. In the law, you're supposed to be making payments to help uh, with cost sharing so that you don't have deductibles rise on low-income Americans. If they stop making these payments, um, you could get a death spiral in some of these markets. So they, they could do a whole number of things to sabotage the individual insurance markets put it into a death spiral, and then hope that the Democrats will come to the table. Now, uh, this is still crazy, because if they do that, they fucking own this. Yeah, you know? I, I know we're not in the prediction business anymore, but they are crazy if they think that people will blame Democrats and not the person they see on TV Agreed. every day. Agreed. But it's just it, the, the scary part about the whole thing is not who gets blamed, right? Because I agree with you that I think uh, they will get blamed for this. But it does mean that a lot of innocent people will Definitely. be hurt by this who don't need to be. Because people will literally it, die. Again, and Paul Ryan is, is just as big of a liar on this, too. It is entirely within the power of the federal government without further legislation to, to uh, shore up the individual insurance markets in Obamacare. It is entirely within their power. If Barack Obama were in office right now, he could take, or any Democrat or any reasonable Republican, they could take a number of steps without Congress to help shore up, maybe not as strongly as they would if they had legislation to do some fixes on ACA, but within their own authority, they could fix the markets. Right. I mean, what's we're so, we're so like sort of through the looking glass on all this stuff. What Tom Price or what these people should be saying is, we don't like Obamacare. We think it's a bad law. We'd like to change it, but we're going to do our best to make sure it works for the people of this country because that's our job. Now, that, you could that, see like a President McCain doing that, a President Romney saying it's that. Also what, it's also what Trump promised he would do. Right. And, and, and we're, we're at this point now where we are legitimately unsure whether or not the Trump administration is going to sabotage yeah. the American healthcare system. And the fact that it is a legitimate possibility gives me such a knot in my stomach. It's just, it's, it's yeah. just really sad. So um, he is very unpopular right now. Gallup had him at 38% over the weekend. Real Clear Politics average is 41%. 538 has him at 40%. Mm-hmm. Democrats are at like you know 9% approval. Independents are in like the high 30s. And notably, Republicans are like anywhere from 80 to 90, which is low for Republicans. So why is he unpopular? Well, it's some combination of, it seems like, from reporting from some of these polls, it's some kind of combination of uh, the people who always disliked him. Uh, the healthcare thing was extremely unpopular, and now um, word of his tremendous budget cuts 
uh, is leaking out there. So Nick Kristoff of the New York Times went out to Trump country to talk to some people about the budget cuts, specifically Trump supporters, Trump voters. A few quotes from some of these Trump supporters. My prayer is that Congress will step in to protect the domestic violence programs that save this woman's life. Quote, why is building a wall more important than educating people? That was from a Trump voter. Quote, if he's preaching jobs, why take away jobs? So, of course, the the issue with all of these Trump voters who said this is they all, to a person, said they will probably still vote for Trump for re-election. So, and and there have been a lot of explanations for that in there. And first thing is, we're two months and two weeks in. Right. So give everybody a chance to process what's going on. People do not like telling a reporter that they were wrong. Nobody likes doing that. Right. Um, also, we are fetishizing a very small subset of the population. Uh, you know, there's been no there's been no soul searching around the black working class and the Hispanic working class who are also being screwed by this president. And the other thing is there's just no polling that bears out focusing on this small group of people. Poor people didn't vote for Trump. Poor people don't vote. You know, like the poorest places vote for Hillary just as much as they vote for Donald Trump. It is a it is a crazy media produced right. kind of focus. And it's like this philo- it, somehow it's like when, when when white people are poor, it's fascinating and nostalgic. And when black people are poor, we don't talk about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, voting against your economic interests is hardly a new phenomenon. You see it on the minimum wage, you see it on Republican tax policies. This has happened for a long time. It's something Democrats have done a lot of hand-wringing about. I, I am very skeptical that enough people know about what's in the budget uh, to really change opinions. I understand that when issues get localized, you start to feel it, et cetera, but nothing's happened yet. It's been two and a half months. I think that there's just, he wasn't that popular to begin with. They didn't like the choice they were offered. And there's this general like chaotic malaise that's, you know, in all of the coverage. I mean, the guy has not had a good day since his groundbreaking (laughs) joint session speech that everybody loved. Yeah, I, I just, I totally agree with all that. I think it is interesting because, again, we all I'll go back to that Kellyanne Conway quote, like there's a difference between what offends people and what affects people. I think it's not just what offends people, but there's a difference between what the national media focuses on every day. There's been like Russia, 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 right? Like Trump's tweets, all this kind of other stuff. But if he goes down, if he is not reelected, if he loses most of his support, it will be because of budget cuts, health care legislation, things that affect people's lives and their day to day lives, because a lot of these voters they just don't pay attention to the news as closely as the rest of us do. And like you said, Lovett, it takes time to, for this stuff to filter down. And the, the question they're going to ask themselves, not just – and again, there's Trump fans and there's Trump voters. And all of these pieces continue to interview Trump fans, right? It's like you really want them to interview these people who are like, you know, I hate Trump and I hate Hillary Clinton, but I think he might bring about change. So I'll reluctantly cast my ballot for him. Those are the people that we should always be looking right. at. Right. There, there was one in one of those stories. There was one person who said, uh, I'll change my mind if he doesn't bring the jobs back, which mm. I think is really central because mm-hmm. put the budget cuts aside, put the health care aside, put all the machinations that come out of D.C. People voted for Trump because of what they didn't see in their world, right? Which is this, like, change, improvement, jobs, Mm -hmm. a a culture and society they want to live in and feel like they're a part of. And, like, Trump can't change that. And Well, a president can maybe change that. A great leader can change that, can can do things. But Trump has not proposed anything to help these people, right? Like, he's not bringing the coal jobs back. An executive order on climate's not going to bring the coal jobs back. So what what are these people hoping for they're not going to get from him? Yeah, and I and I do think the lesson for Democrats here is because some of these people told Nick Kristoff like, well, you know, we don't like the Democrats because they call us bigots for voting for Trump. I think the lesson for Democrats is you, people need to vote for something, right? Like, and you could imagine some of these people if a Democratic candidate along can, can, candidate came along who was proposing good ideas on jobs and told them like this is the vision for the future, and but like you could see them saying, okay, I want to give that person a chance. Maybe that person might change Washington where Trump couldn't. That's what they're going to say to vote and, for Democrats. Yeah, and also I just think, as with all things, you know. People are complicated and what they tell a reporter as to why they're not changing their mind is not necessarily what's going on. Right. Like that's true for me. It's not, that's not a some elitist point. Like it's really hard to figure out why you think the way you think. And, you know, there's there's cultural reasons. There's economic reasons. There's <laughs> all kinds of reasons. And just none. Of, I guess what I want to think what I come down to is like we can't let all this kind of focus on the why these people are voting and suggesting it may be cultural or tribal. We have to propose simple, elegant policies that will help them. That's it. Mm -hmm. Hey, don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love made-in cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform. It's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust made-in. 
It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Let's move on to Gorsuch. So this morning, Feinstein, Warner, Leahy all announced that they would oppose Gorsuch in support of filibuster. That makes 40. Democrats need 41 to sustain a filibuster. Very likely, while we're recording this, or by the time you hear this, they'll have received 41. Schumer thinks it's likely they'll mm-hmm. have 41. Let's pretend they have 41. Let's pretend it for this. Yeah, only uh, we have only about three Dems. Or now, I guess, four Dems, because uh, Mike Bennett came out in support of them, supporting Gorsuch, um, or at least saying that they won't support the uh, the filibuster. So... What do we think about this? It, it seems like, do we have, I mean, they will they will have a filibuster. It seems like McConnell will have the votes to change the rules and Gorsuch will sit on the bench, right? Yeah, I, I just, when we were in power, we used to say elections have consequences and it was seen as condescending and trite and it wasn't intended to be because it's a fact. You know, I mean, it, this is what happens. I realize the seat was stolen, but I don't know that we can do anything to stop Gorsuch and it's infuriating, but it's... Well, difference in reality. Yeah, the seat was stolen. We should be able. We, you know, we should. He shouldn't be. We should be able to get retribution for this, but we can't because we don't have the number. I don't even know what "should" means here. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I, I think you know, you've seen this sort of. A lot of these stories mention that there sort of seems to be kind of a lack of energy on both sides in this fight, and I think there's a kind of malaise around it, in part because we're so far from principle. You know, I I was before before we were going to record. I just was like, I don't really even understand. What's at stake here? And you look and you look and you see like the hackiest Republicans on Twitter saying this is what Democrats do and it's time they get their payment for what they've done over the years. They always do this. And then, of course, there's the Democratic hacks who say the opposite. And so I I went and I was like, look, I was like, let me look at this and figure out what happened here as like, you know, a straight shooter. And you look and you say, okay, there's like four key events. One is Robert Bork. You really do have to start there, which was a. Uh, a crazy fight that changed the way we talk about judges forever. But it wasn't a kind of thing where Democrats changed changed the way we do this. Republicans voted against Bork, too. Six Republicans voted against Bork. Okay, but that sort of set the table for all these years of fighting. What happened next is event number two, which is the unprecedented obstruction of judges in the Clinton administration by the Republican Senate. And that was an escalation, full stop. And they blocked dozens of judges, and those spots were helped, held open for when George W. Bush took office. Third event... Bush administration, uh, George W. Bush administration, Democrats frustrated by years of Republicans holding up votes. We didn't hold up. We we were not in power. So we just tried to block 10 judges. And if you remember, that was when the word nuclear option was first invoked by Bill Frist or I think Trent Locke coined the term. And there was a gang of 14 that had a compromise, which let most of the judges through. It really was a capitulation. We can. It was a compromise, but it was a capitulation to Republicans. And then and then finally, fourth, it was Harry Reid invoking the nuclear option to get Obama judges through after another round of unprecedented obstruction by Republicans. And so you look at this in this grand sweep of things, and you can blame both sides a bit, but but for Harry Reid invoking the filibuster to punish basically a decade of intransigence, it has been a Republican-led effort that Mitch McConnell has been central to. And the Garland, uh, holding up Garland, is the final straw, and it is incredibly unprecedented. The filibuster for Supreme Court judges will fall. It's just the next thing. There's just absolutely no possibility of any kind of approachment. This is what's next, and we should just draw the line on Garland. And, and if we lose, we lose, but we should fight it to the end. Well, this yeah, this is what I'm saying. Is like I think part of the reason this was this was like a conclusion that was long. We knew this was going to happen from the beginning of this fight, right? We knew McConnell was going to nuke the filibuster we knew that we weren't gonna be able to do this like i just think it's it is just like everything else in our political culture right now which is um things that are norms and rules and traditions but that aren't set into law are going to fall by the wayside in a partisan environment like this right we need to understand that like that is the central thing there is a fundamental change that happened and these little fights that are popping up are emergent properties of of that change Right. Well, but to show how bullshit all this is, too, like Chuck Todd asked uh, and Meet the Press Sunday, asked Mitch McConnell, 
which is a really smart question. Yeah. He goes, okay, so will you commit to a rule now where no Supreme Court nominee will be confirmed in an election year anymore, since that's what you said with, for Garland? And McConnell goes, no, that's an absurd question to ask. Yeah, well, no one owns well, hypocrisy like Mitch McConnell. You know what? I mean, he's Fuck mo- you. <laughs> he's the <laughs> like, most hypocritical lawmaker in power, period. Because it just, I mean, let's remember what happened with Garland just one more time. Um, Scalia dies within one hour after Scalia dying, McConnell says Obama will not be able to nominate a Supreme Court justice. It was 11 months left to go in Obama's term, and he decided not to do that. So, like, you just have to say Mitch McConnell decided fuck traditions, fuck norms, fuck rules. The only thing I have to abide by is actual laws, and so if it, if I can do whatever I want and hold up a Supreme Court nomination, I'm going to do it. And now he's saying, if I can nuke the filibuster up, I, I'll do that too. Yeah. So people do things that they have the power to do. It's a raw power game here. Harry Reid gets, I think, uh, more than his fair share of the blame for this for some of his early statements. But I think McConnell is as cynical a Senate majority leader as we've ever had. Harry Reid invoked the nuclear rule for lower court judges because of unprecedented, unprecedented obstruction. Yeah. It was an unprecedented. It was unprecedented response to unprecedented obstruction. There was, and then Garland comes along, and and we go to a hundred. Right? There's just there is there was no justification for it. There was no rule for it. It was pure power, and that's it. That's it. It's over. Here's my and question. It's going to go. Do you think it matters in some of the some of these red state Democrats that are up next time? You know, some of them said no. Some of them some of them are going to say yes. Some of them are going to say no. Do you think it matters to voters that much? I have you know, one of the things that's been most fascinating to me over the years of Supreme Court fights is how uh, is the polling about it, how not political the actual polling is. You see over and over again that like people want qualified judges confirmed no matter which party nominates it. That may be part of product of not really knowing where the judges stand or not fully following it. But still, there really is some kind of it's 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 actually like actually surprisingly positive. Right. But the only place I really see this being a big factor is in a presidential primary. You know, I mean, if you look back, if you if, if you had voted for any of the Bush nominees, it probably would have been a, a death knell in a primary. Well, so here's my next question. Last question on this. Should Dems who uh, oppose the filibuster be primary because some groups uh, or, or some, some groups are starting to say they're not going to support any Democrat who uh, who votes for Gorsuch. I think that's nuts. I hate these purity tests. I do not want to be the party that does these things. I, you know, I don't know, though. I I guess, like, you, you look at where this is all heading, and, and so I want to agree with you on that. And because, I, you know, in principle, that makes sense. But then you look at where this is heading, and, and because you look at where this is heading and you say, okay— does that mean that you'll just at the point you'll, there'll never be a confirmation for a judge of the opposite party? Is that the logical conclusion of this? Right. Once we get rid of the filibuster and you need 51, if your party controls the Senate and the presidency is in the other party, there'll never be another seat filled. We'll just have empty Supreme Court. Like, how does this end? Right. And so I want to agree with you there. At the same time, I understand the need to put pressure on these people, because if that is where we're going, if we are going to end up at a place where it's a pure partisan decision, then we need people who are going to fight. We're going to cut off our nose to spider face, right? I don't like Joe Manchin. I hate his politics. I find him personally annoying. But, like, do I want to jump in on his primary and say, you're done, we're going to primary you, you're out of office because you don't agree with me on every decision, including the Supreme Court? I just, I can't get myself to that place. Well, though, I have to say, you know, having Joe Manchin there, I would like to see Joe Manchin primaried by somebody who represents a kind of politics that would be better for the people of West Virginia rather than this kind of capitulating nonsense. I'm fine with that. I'm just not fine with a series of litmus tests on issues like this. I just, there's something about it that I just... I don't like it. Well, I do think it comes back to if you support or oppose Gorsuch, like you have to support or oppose him based on some principle about yeah. how he might affect people's lives. Right. And not like you. I mean, going into like the I mean, there's a lot right now. Like he didn't answer my questions. He didn't do this. He didn't do mm-hmm. that. It's like there is a judicial philosophy that, that Neil Gorsuch has that is very far to the right in some respects, further to the right than Scalia. Right. So if you believe that is very dangerous for people and is going to set, you know, decades, he's young, he's 49 years old, decades of precedent that could really harm people, then, you know, and then you, you should oppose him and forget about the, the filibuster, the institution, whatever else. But if you think that the other party gets to have, you know, the person who just became president gets to nominate a justice yeah. in a conservative mold and like you hope that he, you know, you think that when it comes time to making a lot of decisions, he won't necessarily be partisan, but will abide by the law, then go ahead and vote for and, him. But like, at least explain that. You and know? I wish, I wish that we could do that, right? I mean, Scalia, I don't, I, Scalia was confirmed by what, nearly well, unanimously 98 to zero we don't live in that world anymore and it's probably good that we don't live in that world anymore yep. but we're trapped in this 
tit for tat game. And I don't know how you reset it, right? Because you could, you know, they they stop something, so we stop something, and and then they escalate, and then we escalate, and basically you go down this you go down this path, and then there'll never be another judge confirmed. You know, it used to be those kind of judicial philosophical questions weren't enough to justify voting against, right? It was a it was merely a question of were you qualified, mm-hmm. and now we're at a place where it's it's fully ideological. And I just don't know how you get out of that. And if and if that is how it's going to be, we have to fight 100 percent of the time. Well, but that's that's where I I agree with your conclusion, your, your point before the conclusion that it's ideological. Like I, I'm not saying anyone should vote for Gorsuch. I'm not I'm not coming out in support of him in any way, shape, or form. What I'm what I'm having a problem with is setting up another litmus test that say we're going to primary everyone who doesn't oppose a Trump Supreme Court justice. I just think those are dangerous precedents. That's more money going to these races. You already have. 10 Democrats, I think, having millions of dollars of ads run against them. I mean, I just yeah. think we could make things worse. I, I do think that you, the decision to primary someone or for a group not to support someone has to be broad and take into account their entire voting record right. and not just one vote. Right. Unless it's unless you're a group that that's your single issue. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah. you can do whatever you want as a group. But um, all right. Before we get to uh, before we get to Catherine Hayhoe, let's talk about Bill O'Reilly. <sighs> oh, boy. So, over the weekend, the New York Times reported that five women received settlements totaling $13 million after accusing O'Reilly of sexual harassment or verbal abuse. Um, basically, he would promise jobs with the expectation of sexual favors. This went on over many, many years. Some of these um, settlements had been reported in the past, but I think there were three or four new ones. So, um, Fox, in response to this, uh, extended O'Reilly's contract. <laughs> so, I mean, it's pretty gross, guys like it and it's it's gross for o'reilly but like o'reilly's always been a fucking asshole but like fox news after dealing with the roger ailes scandal where they just paid out 20 million dollars and and roger ailes was for, forced out now they're gonna stand behind o'reilly too fox news is a rotten organization rotten. and along the way many people including us in the white house have tried to sort of bring them back into the fold and work with them and we sort of normalize that what they do they peddle lies they have a leadership that has sexually harassed and done whatever they've wanted to women in that organization for decades. And they allow anyone who makes them money to get away with it. For and it's the money. It is and, for and look, the money. Look no further than who's in the White House right now to like the message that sends to every woman in this country who's dealt with this shit before. Um, but it's unconscionable. And people should speak out. And, you know, there's an organization on Twitter called Sleeping Giants that goes to every advertiser that advertises on Breitbart. And they've gotten like 1,750 people to pull ads. That kind of effort needs to be started with Fox until they get rid of this. Creep. I mean, that's how they got rid of Glenn Beck, right? Ultimately, Glenn Beck was able to was canceled because the advertisers started pulling out. Yep. It is so despicable. You have Roger Ailes, who is sexually harassing women for his entire tenure, turning around and protecting Bill O'Reilly, who's sexually harassing people for his entire tenure. One thing that I think is fascinating about these stories, though, is it actually relates back to the Supreme Court fight, which is that Clarence Thomas wouldn't be confirmed today. Because the sexual harassment that <laughs> that he inflicted on Anita Hill would not get a pass the way this got a pass. And what's interesting to me is the rules changed on these guys, right? They changed while they were in those jobs. It, it, they could get away with this for a long time. All of these stories were out. I, you know, I see people tweeting, I can't believe this story about Bill O'Reilly. It's been out there years. for years. The $9 million settlement, the the transcripts of his abuse, the transcripts where he talk, where he threatens people and says, Roger Ailes will, 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 will quietly get you in one way or another, that I'm the street fighter, I'm on TV, but we get you behind the scenes. All this stuff has been out there for a really, really long time. And it is fascinating how all of a sudden there's a critical mass and then the culture remembers that it changed. I mean, the same thing happened to Bill Cosby because those stories were out there for years and years and then all of a sudden Hannibal Burris makes a joke and and things unfurl and and uh, the worst part is all of these people are allowed to stay at Fox News which every day is the number one defender acting as state television for a man in the White House who is a sexual predator <laughs> okay <laughs> Yeah, and who has who has been who? Uh, so many women came out to uh, for sec- allegations of harassment. You know, nothing came from it. Nothing was ever disproven. Like, and it we just went on like on nothing happened. It was literally <laughs> on, tape, about him, it on tape, bragging about it on tape. And Bill O'Reilly every night defends Donald Trump's agenda, and he has sexually harassed people. He's defended Roger Ailes, who sexually harassed people, and no one fucking does anything at this organization. And the other thing too is it's it's. We have no idea how many settlements are out there because those settlements are pretty ironclad. Yeah. Right. Th- that that 
that that that that people come forward, they look at their options, they look at whose careers have been destroyed by going forward, and they say, you know what, I'm going to settle. I'm going to settle. I'm going to take the money. And they they write check after check after check because Fox News has generated billions of dollars or hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for their parent corporation. And everybody looks the other way, and it's despicable. And and uh, Fox News and O'Reilly both in their statements said. Um, well, none of these women called the Fox hotline. There's a hotline you're supposed to call. Like, after it's been well known for a long time that Roger Ailes had financed a unit at Fox entrusted with surveilling its own employees. Yeah, like, the, maybe you don't want to call the hired, fucking hotline. They hired Bo Deedle to trail these women around, and they put him on air as a contributor. Yeah, the hotline, man. The call is coming from inside the house. Like, yeah. you can't call the hotline. You pick your call. It's like, Roger Ailes here. How can I help you? Ah, hang up. Dis- I'm, just, disgust- I'm just so sick of the in, the... in the conversation about media organizations and ideological media organizations, left and right it's like and then there's organizations on the right like fox news that just have a conservative viewpoint and organizations on the left like the huffington post no you know what fox is nothing like that fox is a garbage organization that protects sexual harassers that and they lie all the time like you said that's what they do they are not a legitimate fucking news organization there are some legitimate reporters in there a few left and you know what a few and and chris wallace and 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 uh uh, what's his name shep smith uh, you guys got to look in the mirror because you're part of something fucking evil and you can't pretend you're not. It is evil. There is evil in the world. And Fox News is a disgusting organization with giant old man heads attacking pretty young women and putting them on television if they'll do sexual favors. Like that is not an acceptable news organization for the White House briefing room. I guess it is if you're sitting next to fucking Alex Jones. But otherwise, it's escalated a lot, guys. Escalated unbelievable. pretty quickly. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if we like Fox. I it's so awful, man. No, I'm just I'm just sort of sick of them getting a pass every day. Agreed. Okay. When we come back, we will talk to climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. With us on Pod Save America today, the director of Texas Tech's University Climate Science Center, climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. So we invited you on. We heard from one of our uh, our friends at the White House, uh, Tanya, that when you were at the White House event, South by South Lawn, you were at an event with um, Barack Obama and Leonardo DiCaprio, and apparently you stole the show. You were much more impressive <laughs> than either of those guys. Well, that's very kind of them to say. I definitely <laughs> had fun. So last night I was asking uh, folks on Twitter what, what they wanted to ask you, and um, I got like many, many different versions of the same question, which is, how fucked are we? <laughs> yes, I saw that. He's okay. So, uh, so what do you think? Well, I can answer that question because I'm actually one of the people who does the research to answer that. And the answer, of course, is that a certain amount of change, there's nothing we can do. It's as if we've been smoking for 30 years already. Some of our lung damage is permanent. But I run this information out into the future, and specifically, I look at the difference between what the future will look like based on the choices that we make today, if we continue to pursue the clean energy economy, or if we try our best to roll back the clock and pretend that it's 1900 and bump up the coal industry. There's a massive difference in our future depending on the choices we make today. So no, it is not too late, and our actions and our choices do matter. So it's hard to overstate what a radical pick Scott Pruitt was to run the EPA. He sued the agency 14 times. He doesn't believe that CO2 is a primary driver of climate change, which is stunning. Even ExxonMobil said that. Can you talk about his selection, what it means for U.S. climate policy, and if there's anything states, cities, or citizens can do to to weigh in and push back? Yeah, I agree. I mean, putting somebody who doesn't believe in something in charge of that very institution is like putting one of the world's leading atheists in charge of the Church of England. (laughs) It just doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? Now, the EPA is primarily concerned with with regulating our air quality and our water quality. They don't do as much on climate change as other agencies, and that might surprise people. I work with agencies across the board, everybody from uh, Department of Interior to... Um, infrastructure, and um, commerce. 
But the EPA is primarily concerned about the immediate impacts of burning fossil fuels on our lives, and that is pollution. Air pollution from fossil fuels kills 200,000 people in the United States every year. That's how important these standards are. Not to roll them back, but to increase them. Um, So one thing that Trump did, speaking of these standards, is he signed this executive order on... uh, um, called the Energy Independence Order or something like that. and uh, But uh, really, it's about rolling back the clean climate plan, uh, uh, the clean power plan. Um, there was It was sort of a catch-all. There was a lot in there. Uh, what is the most worrisome to you? Yeah. <laughs> well, where should I start? <laughs> so, so first of all, though, let's, let's be clear. The clean power plan was what the president could do with the abilities that he had at the time, but it would not take us all the way to the Paris Agreement. So the Paris Agreement, signed about a year and a half ago almost, um, try, says that we should limit warming to at least two degrees and possibly one and a half if we can to avoid the most dangerous impacts of climate change. And the Clean Power Plan was only part of the way there. We needed more. Now, of course, we're looking at not even that. We're looking at a lot less. Um, but we're also looking at things that just lack common sense. Like investing in the coal economy when there's already twice as many jobs in the solar industry and coal jobs have been dropping like a rock, not because of the clean power plan, but just because it's not an economically viable form of energy anymore. It's like investing in insuring up horse farms when Henry Ford is already rolling out the Model T on his assembly line. Um, honestly, the most concerning thing to me is, is that these regulations are going to be rolling the United States back from an international perspective, from a technological perspective, back into possibly even a second world country. China is already poised to take the leadership, not just in the clean energy economy, they've already taken the leadership there, but um, in the, in the, with the climate plans as well. So the U.S. is losing leadership. And how long will it take to regain, if ever? So I, I know you do this a lot. What's the best way to talk to people who don't accept climate science? What, what do you think the source of climate denial is and how do you sort of break through that? Oh, that is a good question, and that's why one of the little global weirding videos that we did for PBS that you can find on YouTube, one of the most popular videos is, if I just explain the facts, they'll get it, right? Mm -hmm. So often, we hear people saying things that we know make no sense, like the Earth isn't warming, or it's just a natural cycle, or scientists don't know enough to actually say what it is yet. And we know there's good facts that we can counter each one of those arguments with. There's a website called Skeptical Science that has answers to over 250 common but-what-about questions. What we found, though, is that when we respond to people who are throwing up these science sounding arguments, or even religious sounding arguments, like God wouldn't let this happen, or the world's going to end anyway, why do we care? What we find is it's like playing the whack-a-mole game at the fair. You whack one mole, another one pops up. You whack that one, another one pops up. You can keep on playing this game infinitely because the real reason people object has nothing to do with the science and everything to do with the solutions. They believe that if we agree that climate change is real, it means government control, loss of personal liberties, complete destruction of the economy, and all kinds of negative things that they're not willing to accept. No one really would. But that's why they decide it's easier to say it isn't real than to say it is, but I don't want to fix it. To, just to dig in this, on this a little more, you see people who are worried about climate change try out different angles. There's health impacts. There's harm to public lands and what that might mean for hunters and fishermen. There's religious, spiritual terms. There's national security implications. It can feel like we're flailing around a bit when making that argument. Do you feel like there's a there's a way people should present these facts or try to talk about this that is most convincing? That's a good question. It is completely true that connecting this issue of climate change to the values that we already have is one of the best ways to talk about this issue. So first of all, rather than bringing in, you know, five feet worth of scientific reports and just whacking someone upside the head with all of the data and information, instead, having a conversation, figuring out what makes them tick, and then saying, hey, you know what, I'm a parent too. And, you know, this is what my daughter does, this is what your son does, and, you know, I'm really concerned about this issue you know, climate change or air quality because, you know, my child has asthma or I know that this affects children living in the city. So so connecting first over shared value is an incredibly effective way to talk about this. And we can find that shared value 
maybe not with every single person on the planet, but with the majority of them, we can find that shared value if we're willing to listen and talk first. One of the easiest ways, though, that I found to have a conversation is to start, again, not with the science, but rather by talking solutions. Because there are some incredible solutions out there that anybody at any end of the political spectrum can get completely enthusiastic about. And that's often a much more natural way to talk about it because you can be enthusiastic and excited about it. And the social sciences show that if we agree with and support a solution to a problem, we're much more likely to actually agree that the problem is real than if we feel like there's nothing we could or would want to do about it, then our instinctive reaction as humans is just to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter or it isn't real. So one thing Democrats have done, I think, over the past few years or decade, really, is is try to take that advice, right? Recognizing that people aren't really taking the science appeal and, and talk more about jobs and the benefits of the economy and leadership on solar and leadership on renewables. And then what we've seen is actually a like sort of a, a more partisan response, right? That like that Democrats increasingly care about the issue, but Republicans increasingly don't. There was a Gallup poll that said 66 percent of Democrats believe it's a serious problem and only 18 percent of uh, Republicans have the same concern. Uh, how do you? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, it's, a, it's like I'm, I'm sorry to come back to this pessimistic problem, but like, what do you do with that? Yeah, no, no, no. We have to look the facts in the face. You can't just kind of you know shove your head under the carpet and pretend like like it isn't you know it isn't a big deal. Right. I mean, you know, Demi- John, John, and I we wrote tons of speeches and we talked about the clean energy revolution and the jobs it'll bring and and the and the promise of of being a leader on on these issues and and and, and the renaissance that will come. And here we are, you know. Yeah. Well, here we are, but at the same time, things are changing. I mean, honestly, if you look at the last eight to ten years in the United States and you look at where the greatest forward progress was happening on clean energy and on building resilience to a changing climate, as much as the president did and tried to do, the majority of the action was happening at the levels of individual states, cities, and in the, in the tech sector. So all of that momentum is there, and things are changing, and I see them changing in Texas. I mean, a couple of years ago now, I was down visiting a farmer down by La Mesa, a very conservative part of West Texas, and um, after, you know, after we kind of got to know each other and had uh, lunch together, I asked him a question that had been bothering me. I said, well, if you don't mind telling me, is there a reason why your neighbor has wind turbines right up to the edge of your property line? But you don't have wind turbines, you just have a couple of oil wells. And I was kind of expecting him to say, you know, something negative about, oh, you know, liberal, whatever, whatever. And he said, yes, there is a reason. And so I said, well, uh, what is it? And he said, I've been on the list for two years waiting for my turbine. <laughs> yeah. He said, my neighbor got on before me, and I said, oh, well, why do you want them? And he said, well, it's because the check arrives in the mail. I mean, those oil people are always driving in and off the land, messing up my roads. And the wind people, they set them up and they push the buttons from Florida. And so we're seeing these types of changes all across Texas. We already get 12% of our energy from wind. We have entire towns, like Georgetown, going 100% green, making a big point of the fact that they're just doing it because it's cheaper. And we have army bases like Fort Hood doing the same thing. And so I feel like in some ways um, everything that's been said and talked about about the clean energy revolution it was just in advance of that boulder gathering the momentum enough to be rolling downhill by itself. And I feel like it's starting to do that now. So that raises a question that we get a lot from people, which is, you know, what concrete steps can people take in their own lives to do something about this? Um, You know, if you can't get wind turbines on your property, right? Like, what are some other steps that that anyone out there can take who's listening right now? Oh, I love that question. And that was definitely another one of our little global weirding videos we did is, you know, I'm just one person. What can I do? The first thing we can do is get online and find a carbon calculator and actually figure out what our carbon footprint is. Because depending on who we are and what our lifestyle is, the most, most of our carbon can be coming from different places. It might be coming from driving my car and commuting. It might be coming from traveling. It might be coming from my diet. It might be coming from other things. And so, the number one thing we can do is the most painless thing, which is step on the scale and actually measure it and see where it's coming from. And then there's all kinds of places that can give you helpful little hints. There's a great book called Cooler Smarter um, and lots of great websites that can say, you know, if you're concerned about cutting your, you know, cutting your carbon footprint in terms of energy your house uses or your transportation or your lifestyle, here's what you can do. But the bottom line is today, 
in my opinion, the most important thing we can do about climate change as individuals is talk about it, hmm. which we're doing today. Because studies have shown that over 75% of people in the United States talk about climate change less than a few times a year. Why? Because we're scared to. <laughs> we don't want to bring it up. Yeah. We don't want somebody to snap off our head if we mention <laughs> climate change. And that's why it's so important to get those talking points about solutions, about Elon Musk's solar shingles, or how much money I save because I have a plug-in hybrid now. Or, wow, I love those amazing light bulbs I got on Amazon. They use 10% of the energy. My electricity bill is you know, almost nothing, but they give great light. We need these talking points. Talking is one of the most important things you can do, and that's why... One of the organizations that I support as a, as a science advisor is Citizens Climate Lobby because they go in and they talk to every elected representative from every part of the spectrum, and they have been doing amazing things. There's a bipartisan climate solutions caucus in Congress now that has 34 members, 17 of which are Republicans. If that isn't a miracle, I don't know what is. And um, I also believe the carbon footprint of tweets is near zero. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And if you use a Mac, they use less electricity than a PC. <laughs> <laughs> well, Catherine, so you sound pretty hopeful, even though we're in uh, we have a pretty reactionary administration when it comes to climate. You, uh, it, you, you seem hopeful about the future. Well, we have to be because despair is going to lead to inaction, and we can't afford to give up. Because, as I said at the beginning, my own research has showed that our choices make a difference. Well, um, I actually, oh, go ahead. I was going to make it, you know, in the movie Interstellar, a false sense of hope is how they, uh, uh, you know, solve their problems. So thank you for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. No, I'm, I'm definitely not um, not supporting kind of a Pollyanna view that everything will be okay if we just wait it out. Right. Uh, we, we have to take responsibility for what we can do, but we need that long-term hope to spur our forward momentum. And I'm, I'm Canadian, and we had, you know, we had about eight or nine rough years in Canada, um, you know, the last decade, we have a new prime minister now who was able to put a price on carbon within a year of getting into office, in part because things were so dark before in terms of scientists being muzzled and monitoring stations being shut down, a lot of the stuff that we're looking at here in the U.S. So I know this is very hopeful to say, but I really hope that this is a wake-up call to all of us as individuals that our voice matters and we can make a difference and nobody else is going to take care of this problem for us. Well, that is a very hopeful, good note to end on. Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us today. And uh, please come back again. I will. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care. That's our show for today. Thanks again to Catherine Hayhoe for joining us. And uh, and we'll see you later. Do you feel that optimistic about the climate? I do. After talking to Catherine. Mm, I want to be hopeful. You've got to do something. That's like, how we're going to do this? Like, action. Like, let the show end? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I want to let the show end just yet. <laughs> so just, the idea of being hopeful or not hopeful is like, are you doing something or not doing something? I think that's a better question I to ask than are you hopeful day. or not. Tweet every you do. Day. You tweet every day. Okay. We will see you soon. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com.